Chapter 6 The Human Soul, Its Descent and Its Confusion in the Sensible World The descent of the soul plays a prominent role in Plato's work, in particular in the Phaedo and the Republic, and was also widely debated among Platonists in late antiquity. Platonists usually held that the soul, although ideally residing in the intelligible world, at times descends through heaven into the sublunary sphere in order to give life to human bodies. Yet if human souls, like divine souls, are eternally involved in their thinking, in the intelligible world, as Plotinus believes they are, then we may wonder what it means for him to say that they sometimes descend into the sensible world. How can they descend and at the same time remain in the intelligible world? I shall address this problem in the first section of this chapter. I will argue that the soul's descent takes place within the soul and has nothing to do with travel through space. In the second section, I shall consider how their activity in the sensible world affects human souls in ways in which divine souls are never affected, while the latter remain eternally unperturbed in the intelligible world, human souls care for their bodies in such a way that they are at most rarely aware of their own activity in the intelligible world. Moreover, as a consequence of their activity in the sensible world, they become perturbed and confused. Since this confusion is also the key to Plotinus's ethics, I will briefly sketch this notion of purification as the way of leaving one's confused state behind. Descent as Experience When ancient philosophers discussed the soul, they usually had in mind the human soul. The human soul is, for us, the most interesting type of soul, because it is the type of soul we need to know about if we want to know what we are. As was stated in earlier chapters, the soul was generally considered to be the principle of life, and more precisely, the principle of the specific sort of the life that a specific living being leads. Accordingly, the soul of a star, for example, must account for the life of a star, and the human soul for human life. Human life, unlike that of a star, is immediately familiar to us, and in this sense we already know, pre-philosophically at least, some of the functions that a human soul, if we accept this entity as, a principle of, as the principle of human life at all, must account for. Hence, we would expect such a soul to account, for example, for such activities as growth, reproduction, sense perception, memory, reason, and having opinions. The claim that the soul accounts for such activities does not imply that these activities are exercised by the soul. Aristotle, for example, famously attributes such activities to the composite living being, and not to the soul. According to him, the living being, and not the soul, weaves or sees. 
The soul nevertheless accounts for such activities because the composite living being can exercise them only in virtue of having a soul. This view marks a sharp contrast with Plato, who instead attributes at least some of the activities of the living being, not to the composite, but only to the soul. The composite living being can only be said to be active in such ways derivatively. If the body has any function as far as these activities are concerned, it is at most a tool by means of which the soul is active in these ways. An example for this can be found at Timaeus 45ab, where Plato explains that the sense organs are tools that the soul uses in sense perception. While the sense organs are merely its tool, the soul is the proper subject of sense perception. Hence, Plato, in contrast to Aristotle, makes room for activities of the soul alone. The body is merely the soul's instrument for their exercise. Famously, the soul, according to Plato, can also be active without any involvement of the body. It is able, for example, to grasp intelligible entities, such as platonic forms. In the Phaedo, 79c, Plato asserts that the body is not even a tool for this kind of cognition, but rather a hindrance to it. In order to contemplate the world of forms, it is better for the soul to be on its own and without a body. Phaedo 79d. This is the life that the soul has on its own, a life that is independent of the body. Platonists were acutely aware of Plato's distinction between these two sets of functions. The former covers the functions that we might be inclined to attribute to the human soul in order to explain the activities of the corporeal human being, or, in other words, in order to explain the activities of the composite of body and soul, whereas the latter covers the functions that a human soul exercises if it is not concerned with corporeal matters, but rather does such things as contemplating eternal truths. Platonists also often put the difference between the souls exercising the first set of functions and the souls exercising the second set of functions in the following way. In exercising the first set of functions, the soul is said to be in the sensible world, and in exercising the second set of functions, it is said to be in the intelligible world. Emphasizing Plato's claim that the body is a hindrance to the exercise of functions belonging to the intelligible world, Platonists usually considered the exercise of functions in the sensible world, at least to some extent, to be incompatible with the exercise of functions in the intelligible world, an incompatibility to which I shall return. Accordingly, they believed that the human soul, when it is in the sensible world, is not usually in the intelligible world. In order, in order to explain that the human soul nevertheless exercises functions of both types, they found the following solution. The human soul naturally resides in the intelligible world. However, for some reason or other, it sometimes descends into the sensible world and gets embodied in a human body. 
After some time there, the soul leaves its body and ascends back to the intelligible world. Thus, Platonists distinguished, broadly speaking, temporally between the exercise of the two types of function. During its incarnation, a soul is active in ways we are familiar with from our own embodied lives. Before and after its incarnation, however, it resides in the intelligible world, contemplating true reality. Platonists filled in the details of this story in various ways. Some had elaborate views about the ascent and descent of human soul. Some of them took it quite literally, often combining their theory of ascent and descent with astrological views. An example of such a view can be found in Porphyry's De Antro Nympharium. In this treatise, Porphyry provides the reader with an allegorical interpretation of the description of a cave of nymphs on Ithaca in Homer's Odyssey. The cave, in Homer's description, has two entrances. One in the north for human beings to descend by, and one for immortals in the south. Porphyry reports that the theologians identified these gates with two signs of the zodiac, namely with Cancer in the north and Capricorn in the south. Numenius and Cronius, according to Porphyry's testimony, claimed that souls descend through Cancer and reascend through Capricorn thus explaining why Cancer and Capricorn are not only signs but also gates. Accordingly, the descent and ascent of the soul is taken literally as a voyage through space. It is stated where in space souls descend and where they reascend. In other ancient texts explaining the descent and the ascent of the soul, we find claims about how the stars influence the descending soul when the soul passes through their sphere. In each sphere, the soul is thought to be given certain characteristics, or powers, that, according to the corresponding astrological view, belong to the respective star. To give but one example, according to Macrobius, the soul acquires the capacity to, uh, for desire in the sphere of Venus. What was the point of these colorful stories? The ascent and the descent of the soul was a solution to the following problem. On the one hand, the soul, according to Platonist lore, belongs to the intelligible world. Following the Phaedo and the Phaedrus, Platonists believed that the human soul is in its best state when it is in the intelligible world, contemplating true reality. On the other hand, human souls are at least sometimes embodied in human bodies. Moreover, in our ordinary lives, most of us do not appear to contemplate true reality, at least most of the time. Instead, we are busy doing all sorts of things, most of which are in some way or other related to our bodies. The views considered above explain why human souls, during their embodied lives, for the most part, do not seem to contemplate true reality. During their incarnation, they are in the sensible world, not the intelligible world. 
Even if a Platonist does not take stories of descent literally, because they do not think, for example, that the intelligible world is a place in the same sense as Paris is, and if instead they understand them metaphorically, they might still hold that the soul, when embodied, does not, for the most part, exercise such functions as contemplating reality. Plotinus, like other Platonists, believed that there are periods in the life of the human soul when it does not have to care for a body, but rather simply remains unperturbed in the intelligible world, contemplating reality. Aeneid 4.8, Chapter 4, Line 1. Being a Platonist, he also discusses the descent of the human soul in several treatises. However, unlike many of his fellow Platonists, he argued that, in a crucial sense, the soul never, literally speaking, descends into the sensible world. At Ennead 4.3, chapters 9 through 23, we find a long discussion of the relation of soul to body. After having considered the world soul in chapters 9 through 11, Plotinus turns in chapter 12 to the human soul. He immediately starts with a discussion of the descent of the soul, the topic that dominates the whole of this section of Aeneid 4.3 from chapters 12 to 18. In this context, we find a passage which might seem to indicate that Plotinus conceives of the descent of the soul in the same way as the Platonists discussed above. For chapter 15, it begins as follows. Quote, the souls, when they have peeped out of the intelligible world, go first to heaven, and when they have put on a body there, go on by its means also to the earthier bodies, stretching themselves so far in length. End quote. The passage might seem to mean, and has been taken to mean, that the soul leaves the intelligible world and travels through heaven into the sublunary sphere. However, this is not, I think, how the passage should be understood. The imagery that Plotinus uses rather suggests that the soul remains in the intelligible world, but stretches out from there into the sensible world. Both the word, word ekupsai and the expression eis hoson an eis mekos ektathosi speak in favor of this interpretation. As far as the former is concerned, Athenaeus, for example, uses the word ekuptein with reference to the snail's eyes. The eyes of the snail, when they peep out, do not leave the snail's body. Rather, they crucially remain part of the snail, stretching out to enable the snail to see farther. The second expression that Plotinus uses is more explicit. The word ektenein precisely means to stretch out, and the metaphor is emphasized by the quantitative expressions eis hoson, so far, and eis mekos, in length. Despite the details that Plotinus provides in this passage, in particular by stating that the soul in heaven takes on a body, 
I suggest that the claim that souls stretch out from the intelligible realm down to the sublunary bodies must not be taken literally. It is difficult to imagine souls having a certain length, let alone different lengths. Instead, the content of the quoted passage should be taken as an image to show that souls, while remaining in the intelligible realm, also have to care for such remote things as human bodies. The remoteness should be understood, I would suggest, as a distance on the ontological scale. Souls caring for sublunary bodies are said to stretch down even farther than the heavenly sphere. That is, they have to care for the lowest layers on the ontological scale. Thus, this passage does not support the view that Plotinus took the story of the descent of the soul literally. If Plotinus, despite clearly being very interested in the question of the descent of the soul, does not believe that the soul literally descends through heaven, we must ask what, indeed, he makes of it. The great French scholar, Brahir, has suggested understanding it in terms of the soul's experience. In his Notice to Ennead 4.8, he compares Plotinus' conception of the descent with that discussed above, and remarks, quote, Plotinus exchanges the imagery of celestial space for that of the soul's inner experience. The state of the soul's inner contemplation in the intelligible world is contrasted with its typical occupation with sensation and affection. So it is in terms of the soul's passage from the first state to the second that Plotinus understands descent. The problem becomes one of its inner contemplation. End quote. Festugier, following Brehier, makes the same point, also in relation to the beginning of Aeneid 4.8, as follows. Quote, Plotinus translates the myth of the descent of the soul in terms of inner experience. End quote. I shall pursue a similar line of interpretation. Brehier and Festugier refer to the beginning of Aeneid 4.8, where Plotinus tells us that he had woken up out of his body to himself, seeing there an extraordinarily great beauty, living the best life and becoming, during his stay in the intelligible world, one with the divine. After his sojourn in the intelligible world, Plotinus has to descend. He describes the descent as follows, quote, after this stay in the divine, I descended from understanding to discursive reasoning, and I am often puzzled about how I ever descended, and how the soul ever came to be in the body, being in itself such a thing as appeared to me, despite being in a body." End quote. During his stay in the intelligible realm, the soul appeared to Plotinus as it is in itself, an entity belonging to the intelligible world. Plotinus is puzzled about how such a thing, that is, an intelligible incorporeal entity, can be in a body. What does it mean for the soul to be in a body? He also wonders what the soul is and why it is not always in the state 
uh, he then experienced it to be in. Let us first discuss the first part of the quotation. Plotinus describes the descent as one leading from understanding, i.e. from proper thinking, to discursive reasoning. Thus, unlike the Platonists discussed above, Plotinus considers the descent of the soul to take place within the soul. It is a change from one mental state to another. Brehir specifies the two mental states in claiming that the descent is a change from one state of experience to another state of experience. I agree. However, his specification needs further discussion, because the passage quoted also seems to allow for the following alternative. One might think that the descent is actually a descent from one kind of activity to another. According to this interpretation, the two kinds of activity are mutually exclusive. The human soul is active either in the intelligible world or in the sensible world, but not in both worlds at the same time. The claim that the soul is in the intelligible world is understood as meaning that it only thinks in the proper way and thus only exercises, as I claimed above, its essential activity. If and when the soul cares for a body, however, it only reasons, according to this interpretation. That is, it is involved in a process of reasoning. Accordingly, the claim that it is in the sensible world, if and when it is there, is understood as meaning that it is active in a certain way, namely, reasoning discursively. Thus, the interpretation under discussion attributes to Plotinus a view in keeping with the basic claim of the Platonists discussed above, without, however, committing him to their view that the soul literally travels from a place above the heavens to the sublunary sphere. Although I disagree with this interpretation, I believe it has two virtues. First, it shows a way in which we can make sense of Plotinus's claim that divine souls do not descend while human souls do. Divine souls always remain in the intelligible world. Due to their power, they are able to exercise their activity in the sensible world without being disturbed in their contemplation. Human souls, by contrast, due to their weakness, have to descend. This means, according to the interpretation presently under consideration, that they no longer think in the proper way, and thus no longer understand the truths of the intelligible world and the providential arrangement of the sensible world. In this way, the interpretation under discussion makes sense of the claim that human souls, by contrast to divine souls, descend. Secondly, it explains why human souls in the sensible world, with the possible exception of sages, neither seem to understand the theoretical truths of reality, nor seem to be able to base their actions on practical understanding. They cannot do so because, during the time of their incarnation, they lack the corresponding knowledge. Only in the intelligible world do they grasp the relevant truths. As soon as they leave the intelligible world, they no longer think about it in the appropriate way and are thus forced to reason. 
Reasoning is here understood as the imperfect kind of thinking that aims at knowledge, as discussed in chapters 5 and 7. The claim that the soul descends from understanding to discursive reasoning seems to describe this state of affairs perfectly. Despite these two virtues, I do not think that this interpretation is tenable. Firstly, the language Plotinus uses at the beginning of Ennead 4.8, that is, the passage under discussion, is the language one uses to describe an experience. He speaks in the first person singular, describes how he was struck by the overwhelming beauty of that other world, and how he is puzzled after his sojourn there about how he ever came down to this world. Moreover, he states that he, quote, has woken up out of the body to himself, end quote. This kind of language is much more appropriate to describe an experience than to explicate the difference and incompatibility of two kinds of activity. Secondly, in the last lines of the passage quoted, Plotinus is puzzled about how the soul ever came to be in the body, being in itself such a thing as appeared to me, despite being in a body, end quote. According to this passage, the soul is in itself, despite being in a body, such a thing as appeared to Plotinus in the intelligible world. Thus, the soul is in itself an entity that belongs to the intelligible world, even when it is, in some way, in a body. Also note that he uses the notion of appearance here. Proponents of the two activities interpretation might find this second argument unconvincing for the following reason. They might insist that the soul is not active in both worlds at the same time. If and when it is in a body, it is not usually active in the intelligible world. What Plotinus means in the passage quoted, they might argue, is this. The soul, despite being in a body, is such a thing as to be able to be active in the ways he has seen it to be active in the intelligible world. It thus certainly keeps the capacity to be active, but during its incarnation, it is usually hindered in exercising it and only exercises other capacities. According to this argument, the soul's essence, that is, what it is in itself, rather than being an activity, is only a capacity, for all of the soul's activities belong either to one or the other of two exclusive classes. If and when the human soul exercises activities of one of these two classes, it does not exercise any activities of the other class. Hence, since the human soul exercises, at different times, activities of both classes, activities of neither class can belong to the essence of the soul, since what is essential to a thing must belong to it as long as the thing exists. Therefore, no activity can belong to the essence of the human soul. It is difficult to see, however, how this could be Plotinus's view. As we have seen in chapter 4, life is essential to the soul. The soul is both the principle of life and self-moved. 
Indeed, according to Plotinus, its being self-moved is necessary for its being the principle of life. Something without life cannot be the principle of life. Since the soul is the principle of life, it must possess a life of its own, a life that is essential to it. Thus, the essence of the soul cannot only consist of capacities. Moreover, its essential activity must belong to one of the two worlds, and given our discussion in chapter 4, it is clear that it belongs to the intelligible world. If the soul is always active in the intelligible world, no matter whether it is currently caring for a body or not, then the two activities interpretation fails, as the descent cannot consist of a change from one kind of activity to another. Thirdly, the final chapter of the treatise, the first lines of which I quoted above, Aeneid 4.8, chapter 8, begins thus, quote, And if one ought to dare to express one's view more clearly, against the opinion of others, not every soul is descended, and in particular, our soul did not. But there is always something of it in the intelligible, end quote. Plotinus here explicitly states his opposition to the canonical Platonist view. There is a sense of descent, according to him, in which the human soul did not descend into the sensible world, but always remains in the intelligible world. The human soul, insofar as it thinks discursively, always remains in the intelligible world, as I argued in chapter 2. But even if one disagrees with my view of the nature of soul's activity in the intelligible world, the following is clear from Ennead 4.8, chapter 8. Each human soul eternally remains in the intelligible world, according to Plotinus. I suggested above that other Platonists introduced the descent in order to account for the incompatibility, as they saw it, of the soul's activity in the intelligible world with at the same time, that in the sensible world. But precisely what form is that incompatibility supposed to take? There does not seem to be any logical or metaphysical incompatibility between the two kinds of activity, such that they could not both occur at the same time. The reason why Platonists nevertheless believed in it might have been the following. During our incarnation, we are, at best, only rarely aware of the higher activity of our soul. This observation alone does not justify the claim that the two activities are incompatible. However, the Platonist view under discussion can be defended if we add a further premise. The human soul is always fully aware of all its activities, or at least of all its mental or cognitive activities. In early modern times, this view was famously held by Descartes, who writes, quote, Nothing can be in me that is to say, in my mind, of which I am not aware. End quote. And this quote, follows from the fact that the soul is distinct from the body, and that its essence is to think. End quote. Although Plotinus, like Descartes, believed both that the essence of the soul consists in its thinking, and that the soul is distinct from the body, he would disagree with Descartes' argument. According to Plotinus, 
we are not entitled to infer from Descartes' two premises the conclusion that the soul is aware of everything mental in it. Unlike Descartes, he believes that thinking is not necessarily accompanied by a corresponding awareness. At Ennead 4.8, chapter 8, lines 7 through 9, he states, quote, For we do not realize everything which happens in a part of the soul before it comes to the whole soul. End quote. This holds true not only, Plotinus claims, of appetite, remaining in the appetitive part of the soul, but also of the soul's thinking in the intelligible world. In fact, Plotinus argues in this way in order to explain how it is possible that we are, more often than not during our embodied lives, unaware of our own activity in the intelligible world. See Ennead 4.8, chapter 8, line 6. Furthermore, this is the background of our interpretation, following Brehier's of the beginning of Ennead 4.8. It explains how it is possible for a soul to become aware of its own activity. If we were always aware of all our mental activities, we could not become aware of any mental activity. But the human soul, insofar as it is active in the sensible world, only experiences its higher activities in rare moments. If we distinguish between a mental activity and its awareness in such a way that our souls can be cognitively active in certain ways without our being aware of it, then there is no reason to suppose that we cannot be active in the intelligible world without being aware of it. Following this view, it is possible for a soul who is only aware of its activity in the sensible world at the same time to be active in the intelligible world. Plotinus, I submit, holds that this is not only possible, but actually the case. As a consequence of this view, Plotinus rejects the view that the descent is necessary to account for any apparent incompatibility between the two sorts of activity of the human soul. Now, if the descent of the soul occurs within the soul, we can no longer refer to it in order to explain the soul's activity in the sensible world. Therefore, we need to further explore how Plotinus explains what traditionally had been explained by means of the descent of the soul. When discussing divine souls, we already encountered a model for how a soul can be active both in the intelligible and the sensible world, by sending one of its powers into the sensible world. Since human souls are not essentially distinct from divine souls, it seems reasonable to assume that they work in the same way. Explaining activities by means of powers, or more generally dunames, was widespread in ancient psychology and physics. It was part of the Aristotelian heritage. On the basis of patterns of activity, philosophers inferred the existence of certain powers, or capacities, which explained those patterns of activity and were thought to bring them about. Even Galen, a philosopher that was rather reluctant to make metaphysical claims, states this in his De Propris, uh, that he knows the dunames of the soul, since they reveal themselves in the activities of the living beings. 
He professes, however, not to be able to infer anything about the existence of the soul from his knowledge of its dunames, believing the existence of the soul to be utterly unknown. Plotinus, although believing himself to know more than Galen on this last point, agrees that at least some of the powers of the soul are active in the sensible world, and that we can identify these powers through an examination of the corresponding activities. At Ennead 4.8, Chapter 5, for instance, he considers what it would have meant for the human soul to eternally remain in the intelligible world, without ever descending in any sense, and states that it would not have known the powers by means of which it is now actually active in the sensible world. Moreover, these powers would have been of no use, since, quote, Activity everywhere reveals completely hidden power, end quote. Ennead 4.8, chapter 5, line 34. And, quote, everybody wonders at what is within, i.e. powers, because of the variety outside, i.e. activities, end quote. Ennead 4.8, chapter 5, line 36. Thus, what powers a being possesses, can be inferred from how these powers reveal themselves in activities. While at least some activities of the soul in the sensible world are apparent, the powers bringing them about are hidden. The view that the soul acts in the sensible world by means of powers can also be found in Ennead 4.7. In arguing against materialists, Plotinus tries to show that the powers of the soul cannot be corporeal. Neither can they be reduced to corporeal powers. Instead, he claims, such powers as that for sense perception, reasoning, and desiring belong to the immaterial soul. Ennead 4.7, chapter 8, lines 6 through 9. There are other passages showing that the human soul, according to Plotinus, is active in the sensible world by means of powers. Given how widespread the view was that activities are due to powers, this is not surprising. Now, if we combine this with our earlier result, that the human soul is essentially active in the intelligible world, we can see that the human soul's relation to its activity in the sensible world has the same structure as that of divine souls. Human souls, too, are active in the sensible world by means of their or some of their, powers. Furthermore, claiming that it is activity in the sensible world by means of one or several of its powers is compatible with claiming that there is indeed a sense in which the human soul does not descend into the sensible world. It is compatible because the powers of the soul that are active in the sensible world are not everything that the soul is. Rather, the soul is active in the intelligible world, while sometimes simultaneously being active in the sensible world by means of a power or set of powers. I shall discuss the powers of the soul by means of which it is active in the sensible world in the next two chapters. For now, I hope to have shown that the following three claims are compatible. Firstly, the human soul is eternally active in the intelligible world. It never literally descends. 
Secondly, the descent of the soul is a descent occurring in the, hu in the human soul's experience. Thirdly, in spite of not literally descending, the human soul is sometimes active in the sensible world. It is active by means of a power or set of powers. In the next section, I will discuss how the activity in the sensible world brings it about that the human soul is no longer aware of its activity in the intelligible world, or only rarely so. What is more, the soul tends to get confused and perturbed. I will show that the fact that the human soul gets confused in the sensible world is crucially related to the fact that descent is an experience. Moreover, I will sketch Plotinus's notion of purification as the way out of this confusion. Experience and the confusion of the human soul in the sensible world. Like divine souls, human souls are active in the sensible world by caring for a body. I argued above that souls of both types do so by means of powers. However, what crucially distinguishes human souls from divine souls is the fact that they, as opposed to divine souls, are affected by their activity in the sensible world. Not only do they lose sight of their own activity in the intelligible world, but they also become confused as to what they are. This is due to what Plotinus calls their participation in the perceptible. A participation that, in a way to be discussed, arises necessarily for the human soul. Let us start with the notion participation in the perceptible. Plotinus states, quote, Since there is twofold nature, an intelligible nature and a perceptible nature, it is better for the soul to be in the intelligible. Yet, since it has this kind of nature, it must also be able to participate in the perceptible. End quote. Aeneid 4.8, chapter 7, lines 1 through 4. <clears throat> it is perhaps clear why it is better for the human soul exclusively to be in the intelligible world rather than also to be in the sensible world. But two things need further elaboration. What does Plotinus mean by participation in the perceptible? And why is it that human souls must be able to participate in the perceptible? What kind of necessity is this? We should not simply identify participation in the perceptible with being active in the sensible world, since divine souls, while being active in the sensible world, do not participate in the perceptible. What distinguishes divine from human souls? At Ennead 4.8, chapter 7, Plotinus explains the difference by saying that the latter, by contrast to the former, plunge into the sensible world and experience all sorts of things. So at least, at least part of the meaning of participation in the perceptible must be that human souls, unlike divine souls, experience the sensible world. Why and in what sense is this necessary? 
In the chapter referred to above, Plotinus defends the view that it is good for human souls to experience evil in order to gain a better knowledge of the good. This would seem to give us at least one reason. Plotinus emphasizes that this experience is only necessary for weaker souls, assuming that divine souls are strong enough to possess sufficient knowledge of the good without plunging into the sensible world. However, there is another, and I believe more promising, reason. Human souls have to care for their body. It is true, of course, that divine souls also care for their bodies. However, in a way, their job is easier than ours, because the visible gods do not need to experience their environment to fulfill their function, as we saw in Chapter 5. Sublunary bodies are more fragile, and crucially depend on interaction with their environment. At Ennead 4.8 Chapter 2, Plotinus describes the situation of human bodies thus, quote, Our bodies need a lot of troublesome care, pronoia, because many alien things assail them, and they are continually in need, and require every sort of help as being in great trouble, end quote. Aeneid 4.8, chapter 2, lines 11 through 14. This brings out clearly the difference between human bodies and those of the visible gods, a difference that calls for a different degree and a different sort of engagement. Plotinus sometimes calls the involvement of human souls in the body's interaction with its environment self-working. When discussing the world soul, we have seen that this divine soul is exempt from this. In the last chapter, we discussed Aeneid 4.8, chapter 2, lines 26 through 30, where the term self-working occurs, but with a focus on divine souls. Let us now look at it again, this time with a view to the human soul. Quote, the care for the all is twofold. On the one hand, for the whole, by the effortless command of one setting in order by royal authority, and on the other hand, in relation to particulars, already by some self-working activity which is in contact with the thing acted upon, a care filling the acting thing with the nature of the thing acted upon. End quote. While the world soul fulfills its function in the sensible world by royal authority, human souls are more deeply involved with their bodies, so deep, indeed, that their activity affects them. The soul, quote, gets filled with the nature of the thing acted upon. That is, it gets filled with the nature of its body. In a similar vein, Plotinus claims, quote, there are two reasons why the soul's association with the body is hard to endure. Because the body becomes a hindrance to thought, and because it fills the soul with pleasures, desires, and pains. End quote. Aeneid 4.8, chapter 2, lines 42 through 45. It is worthwhile to pay attention to the language of these two passages. In both, Plotinus uses the notion of the soul's being filled. In the former, we learn that it gets filled with the nature of the body, 
and in the latter it gets filled with emotions arising from the body. What does Plotinus mean by being filled? And in particular, by being filled with the nature of the body? We will also have to consider in some detail what precisely the two reasons are for why the soul's fellowship with the body is displeasing. Perhaps the most important text for an understanding of what problems the soul encounters when it is embodied is Plato's Phaedo, where the right sort of care for one's body is a central topic. We learn in the Phaedo that while still embodied, we should separate our souls as far as possible from the so-called pleasures of food, drink, and sex. That is, from the pleasures that are provided by satisfying necessary natural desires, desires that we possess because of our embodiment. While separating our soul from such things, we should concentrate on the soul's proper activity. It's thinking about truth. These two things are related. Socrates in the Phaedo explicitly states that the body is a hindrance to the soul's proper activity. Reading the Phaedo from a Plotinian point of view provides one reason why the soul's fellowship with the body is displeasing. The body is a hindrance to the soul because caring for its body keeps the soul from being aware of its thinking in the intelligible world. Human souls have to care for bodies that are most fragile, and that, for this reason, need a lot of care. While paying more or less continuous attention to its body, the soul cannot at the same time direct its attention to its intelligible nature. As long as a human soul has to care for a body, devoting ourselves to contemplation is only possible at rare moments, even for the best of us. A version of this problem is famously discussed by Aristotle in Nicomachean Ethics 10.7. Aristotle there considers the contemplative life not only as distinct from the practical life, but also as preferable, and indeed as divine. Thus he says that we should attempt to make ourselves immortal, and to do everything to live according to what is best in us. What is best in us, he thinks, is understanding, or nous. Bernier explains this as follows, quote, what is special about the exercise of nous, the highest form of cognition that humans can attain, is that it is no longer a more or less distant imitation of the divine life. It is a limited span of the very same activity as God enjoys for all time. End quote. Hence, if we follow Bernier's interpretation, Aristotle argues that we can become like God in a very strong sense indeed, namely by sharing in a divine life, even if only for a short period of time. For Aristotle, as for Plato, a human life is such that it cannot exclusively be devoted to contemplation. Our being embodied makes it certain that we cannot avoid practical concerns. We have to take care of our embodied selves in this way, 
that will by necessity distract us from divine contemplation. This is, I think, the reason for Aristotle's separation of the practical from the contemplative life. This separation has a consequent, as a consequence, Aristotle's famous separation of the virtues into two classes. Aristotelian moral virtues belong to human beings because of our practical concerns as embodied beings. The contemplative life of understanding, on the other hand, is free of such concerns, and thus also in itself free of the exercise of moral virtues. Thus, the first reason Plotinus mentioned above is attributed great significance to by both Plato and Aristotle. The second reason Plotinus adduced in, this, in the aforementioned passages also has its source in the Phaedo. Plotinus claims that the body fills the soul with pleasure, desires, and pains, and, in the other passage quoted, that the soul gets filled with the nature of the body. While the former claim seems reasonably clear, the latter is not. Yet we find the very same claim in the Phaedo, where Socrates warns us to avoid getting filled with the nature of the body. And on the basis of the Phaedo passage, Plotinus's meaning will become clear. We are told at Phaedo 80e that if the soul manages to leave its body, itself being in a state of purity and drawing nothing of the body with it, then the soul will go to what is akin to it, namely to the divine, immortal, and wise. Arriving at this place, its life will be blissful, free of folly, and the ills of what we may call the human condition. The polluted soul, however, which has served and loved its body, and which has been bewitched by it and its passions and pleasures, and which believes that only the body like is real, will not arrive at a blissful life. In a later passage, Plato even has Socrates say that such a polluted soul becomes itself body-like, in that it shares in the opinions of the body, Phaedo 83d. This is what it means to get filled with the nature of the body. The problem of the polluted soul for Plotinus is not that it would not reside in the intelligible realm, it does reside, reside there, but rather that it is not aware that, it, it's, that its true nature belongs to the intelligible world. It seems to me that this is of great significance to Plotinus's ethics. During our embodied lives, from the very beginning, we have to care for our bodies. In order to do so, we need the help not only of our senses and emotions, but also of our parents and of other members of our society. In this way, we acquire a great many opinions about how to live our lives, about values that are involved in it, and so on. Without learning about how to deal with our body, we could not fulfill our function of taking care of it. Now, since because we have to learn how to live a life largely devoted to a body, most of the opinions a soul acquires are usually concerned with its body. The soul tends to appropriate these opinions, and thus to make them its own. The soul gets corrupted and becomes impure 
in the sense that it makes its body's life its own. This is what I think is meant, both in the Phaedo and in Plotinus, by the claim that the soul becomes body-like. Purification is the way in which we rid ourselves of this body-likeness. That, according to the, uh, the Phaedo, is a sort of pollution. Plotinus has the above passage in mind when discussing purification, at Ennead 1.2, chapter 3. He claims there that the non-wise soul is mixed with the body and shares the latter's affections and opinions. It is not, of course, literally mixed with the body. Immaterial and material things cannot literally get mixed. Rather, the soul is mixed with the body in the sense that it makes the life of the body its own life. Purification consists in gaining independence from the desires and opinions that arise in the soul through its relation to the body. During a long process, the soul must learn and understand that it is not body-like, that the desires and needs of the body are not its own. It has to carefully consider the opinions it has acquired and attempt to rid itself of wrong ones. Surely the soul will also have acquired many true opinions concerning its body, for this is necessary for the human soul to get things right in the sensible world and to properly care for its body. But even in the case of those true opinions, the soul will have to understand that these opinions only concern the body, and not the soul or true reality. For this reason, having appropriated such opinions is a mistake that needs to be corrected. After having discussed the two reasons why the soul's being with a body is displeasing, it is worthwhile to discuss how they are related and how they are distinct. Both reasons have their origin in the fact that the soul must care for a body. The first reason was that the soul, in caring for its body, must, almost all the time, give its full attention to the body, and can devote little time to attending to its own essential activity. As we know from Aristotle, giving one's full attention to the body is an unavoidable consequence of the fact that we have to care for a body. In the first section, I argued that Plotinus understands the descent of the soul in terms of experience. The descent consists in a change from one sort of experience, that of its activity in the intelligible world, to another sort of experience, that in the sensible world. The problem arising from the descent, as we saw, is not that the soul no longer uh, actively thinks in the intelligible world, but rather that when being active in the sensible world, it is no longer aware of it. This is because the soul has the care for a body. So the descent of the soul in terms of experience is necessitated by the first reason discussed in this section. There is no confusion involved in the first reason. It is simply a regrettable and perhaps tragic consequence of the fact that the soul has to care for a most fragile body. The confusion of the soul in the sensible world is the second reason. 
Such confusion is due to the fact that the soul identifies its own life with the life of its body. The opinions and desires it appropriates stand in the way of understanding what it truly is. Its true life does not consist in the life of the body, and not even in its care for its body. Instead, it belongs to the intelligible world. While the first reason is unavoidable, and cannot be overcome as long as we have to care for a body, purification is the way to overcome our confusion. This, unlike the first reason, gives us an ethical task, perhaps the ethical task for our embodied life.